0: to well, the Presbyterian Church, it's good to be back with you this morning. My name is Matt Miller, and I come to you from uh, up the road in Greenville, South Carolina. It's been a pleasure being with you several weeks this year. And this morning, we are returning uh, in the study to Philippians. I think there's two sermons left, this one and then uh, Brian Howard will be preaching next week to land the plane with the Philippians. This morning, we are in chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. In my reading, I'll go through verse 14, but our focus is 10 to 13. And uh, before we read it, as you turn there, just for those of you who've read the epistles of Paul, you've read all 10 of them at some point in your life, or maybe you've read them a lot. Maybe you've got a lot of markings in your Bible, different passages of Paul's epistles. If, if Paul were here today and you had the chance to sign up for an hour with him, over a a lunch or a coffee and the agenda would be you get to pick one passage from his writings and ask him to elaborate on this a bit more uh, to share more of the background to it to share more of how he came to see this uh, to share what what did you feel the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as you were writing this or just just clarify some things for me what, what passage might it be? I imagine in a lot of Reformed congregations, there would be those who would say, ah, I'd take him to Romans 9 and ask him to share with me a bit more about this grand mystery of predestination. Uh, I have some questions about that. Others might want to say, Paul, could you take me to 1 Timothy 2 in that, that passage about Women and their roles not teaching or exercising authority over men. Just help me understand what, what you meant by that and what that would mean in our day. I'd love to spend an hour. If I could pick what I would spend an hour with, on, with Paul over a lunch or a coffee, it would be our passage here this morning. I would love to hear more about how he came to learn the thing that he talks about learning what were some of the signal experiences and milestones? What does it feel like now to have this, this contentment that he talks about? And Paul, could you help me get where you are? Maybe that's you. We don't have Paul with us today. He was beheaded by Emperor, under Emperor Nero's administration in Rome in 64 A.D., but we have someone better to help us understand the Scriptures. We have the Holy Spirit and he who inspired Paul to write these very things and preserve the transmission of the scriptures through all of these centuries is present with us now as we open his word. And he does this marvelous work of illuminating the minds and hearts of the people of God when we when we give our attention to his his word. So we're going to pray for his help as we read and understand Philippians 4, 10 to 13. I ask you to stand with me, please, uh, for the reading of God's word and then our our prayer asking God's help on us. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord remains forever. Our gracious God and Father, we do pray that you would grant us, sent from you and from your Son, Jesus Christ, the blessed Holy Spirit, and that He might take this Word and dig it deep into our hearts and grant us fertile soil to receive it, that it would grow and take root and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold in the particular ways that You have called us to bear fruit for You. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You may be seated. I trust uh, most of you have written a thank you note or two in your life. If you have... Uh, maybe, in response to a, a gift you received, or maybe you were uh, raising money for a mission trip and you had several supporters um, what what are the basic qualities of a, of a good thank you note? Uh, there may be several but but two come to mind um, first, uh, acknowledgement of the gift you know, thank you for thank you for that uh, that clock or that watch where it may be and and then usually you want to add something that indicates how you particularly appreciate it and plan to use it. Like, you know, uh, we look forward to hanging that on the wall in our living room, or we look forward to displaying on the shelf, or we look forward to using it on our next trip, or um, we're looking forward to our mission trip. Couldn't go without your support, right? The basic elements of a good thank you note. Well, the church in Philippi, uh, even though they are far from being a wealthy church, you can read about that in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the churches in Macedonia, it begins with Paul's mission work in Philippi. They actually were churches marked by poverty, but they have, knowing of Paul's extended imprisonment now in Rome, pooled their resources and put together a very nice gift that has been conveyed to him, probably in financial in nature, something that will help alleviate some of the circumstances that he has in prison. And Paul hasn't yet thanked him for it until our passage today. In verse 10, and then again in verse 14, he, he acknowledges their gift. Uh, but then in between, in verses 11 to 13, he breaks form from, from what makes for a good thank you note, and he says something that's a bit odd in terms of a good thank you note, but something that's truly marvelous in terms of the Christian life. And The gist of verses thir- 11 to 13 is this. Dear Philippians... Thank you so much for your gift, even though I didn't need it. Now, that could sound rude if it's not done in the right way. And and reflecting on this, I was reminded of when I graduated from high school. And my parents' friends sent me gifts. And one of the gifts that I received was a monogrammed money clip And this is just particular to me, I'm not making a statement about anyone else, but as soon as I got that monogram money clip, I knew it was something that I would never use. And a day later, one of my parents' good friends, a family I was really close to as well, dropped by the house because they wanted to deliver my gift in person. And so we're sitting in the living room, they give me this small box, I, I pull back the wrapping paper and I open it up and it is a monogrammed money clip. And I could tell my mom was bracing herself. And I said, oh, wow, a monogram money clip. Now I have two. (laughs) And I knew it shouldn't have said that. When it came out, I wanted to pull it back. And my mom made very clear afterwards that she wanted to kill me. (laughs) Paul's better than that. Uh, He's expressing his delight in their gift, and and he recognizes it as a genuine expression of concern from them. You see that here in verse 10. It's been one sense it's late into his imprisonment that it finally comes, but he acknowledges, uh, I know you had not sent a gift earlier because you had no opportunity. Something was hindering the the conveyance over all the miles of, of a gift. And he knows they've been concerned for him, praying for him, thinking about him all along. But then in verses 11 to 13, he adds this unexpected qualification. And maybe what's behind this in Paul's mind is this um, just in case you thought, Philippians, that my time in prison here has been a time of languishing. A time of sinking deep into the doldrums of despair and, and hopelessness and uselessness. And, and, and that's what motivated you to reach so deep into your poor pockets to, to bring me a, a, a wonderful gift. Thinking that I needed this to have my spirits lifted and to be okay. I want you to know all of this time I have been fine. In, in fact, I've been better than fine. Because I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Um, so, so what he's writing here is an odd statement. Thank you for your gift, although I want you to know I didn't really need it. But it's a marvelous statement because Paul is saying to them, as the apostle who brought to you the gospel, and, and as the apostle who just wrote a couple of verses later in verse 9, saying all that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things in your lives as well I want you to know something I want you to know that no matter where I find myself because I am in Christ I am well I am well and he says that so that they can know that too, and he says that, and the Spirit inspired that and preserved that so that you and I can know that too. Would you like to know that kind of deep, enduring, and destructible contentment where you could say, no matter where I am in life, place, circumstance, high, low, because I am in Christ, I am well. well let's, let's, let's go that way. And try and find more of that this morning by looking at three things. The nature of this contentment, the source of this contentment, and the purpose of this contentment. The nature, the source, and the purpose. What's this contentment for in the end? So first, looking at verse 11, the nature of this contentment. The word for content, I have learned to be content at the end of verse 11. It's a a Greek word that literally means um, self-sufficient. It's a word that Paul's borrowed from Stoic philosophy but he's not going to mean what they mean in the way that he's using it, as, as the context makes clear. But it's the general idea of, of being able to be uh, unfazed by changing circumstances around you. I, I heard a podcast recently, a few weeks ago, by a Navy SEAL, and he was talking about growing up. His parents always saying, don't let success go to your head, and don't let failure go to your heart. So it's that sense of, of no matter whether things are going well or poorly, changing circumstances, I'm unfazed by them. The core of who I am and the core of what I want and need is stable and satisfied. So it has this enduring quality to it that holds up through changing circumstances and trials and seasons. Now, the Philippians probably were concerned that Paul wouldn't, wasn't doing so well in prison because most people would not be doing so well in prison. It's a time of being socially isolated. It's a time of being cut off from all of your normal fellowship and routines. It's a time of losing all freedom. It's a time of being under control of people who generally are not looking out for your best interest. And so it's a time where people grow miserable and despondent and maybe unravel you know, week after week, month after month, if it drags on for year after year. And Paul reports that that's not true of him because, as he says in verse 12, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. Now that's an amazing statement in the Bible, if you've read the Bible up to this point. Because the story, especially in the Old Testament, is of people who didn't know how to be brought low and didn't know how to abound. The story of God's people Israel, he he brings them out of Egypt by all these miraculous wonders and signs with his strong and mighty arm and and he brings them into the wilderness, and it's a time of being brought low. They've got the shoes on their feet. They've got tents instead of houses. They are being provided food miraculously, this bread from heaven, this manna day by day. And in this place of living with very little, though having enough, they don't learn how to handle it very well. They they complain more and more and more. We're missing this. We're missing meat. We're missing melons. We're missing leek. We're leeks. We're missing all these good things that we had in the wonderful days in Egypt. Is how they talk in the book of Numbers. And for that, they forfeit their right to enter into the Promised Land. They didn't trust God in a time of of, of little. But then their descendants go into the Promised Land, live there for a few generations. They have a time of abounding. They, they walk into houses they didn't build, and, and, and wells they didn't dig, and vineyards they didn't plant, and it's a time of plenty, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, and they don't handle abounding very well. And just as Moses had warned them in Deuteronomy 6, in the midst of all this plenty and abundance and living high, they forget God. They begin to take him lightly, they begin to think, we don't need him, we're perfectly fine on our own, and they even worship other gods. Israel never learned how to be brought low, and Israel never learned how to abound, nor did their leaders. And it seems that the leaders of Israel, whether Solomon or David or or, or Samson, before them both, they were especially bad at abounding. Their worst moments in life came right after they had reached the pinnacles of their career. You know, it's interesting, I, I, years ago, spent some time, a lot of time with a theologian that of you know, a man named Douglas F. Kelly, he's now retired, taught at RTS Charlotte for many years, Jackson before that, and we were uh, spending some time together one afternoon and I asked him, I said, I have a question for you, you know church history well and modern history very well and American church quite well. It just seems like since the 1970s, the American church has been investing a lot of good attention and energy and resources into Christian worldview training. We've we've had more conferences and centers and retreats uh, and colleges that have had emphases on these and books and good scholars. There's been so much resourcing of Christian worldview training in the American church, and yet it seems like our influence in the culture is not increasing. It's actually waning. Why is that? And the answer he gave me was one I never expected. He said... Because the American church is still too proud. And God knows that if he gave the American church the degree of influence that it wanted, it would destroy itself with it. I don't know what you think of that, but I thought that was a pretty good answer. What he was saying is the American church is not in a place where it has learned well how to abound. And so God can't let it abound more if he cares for her. But isn't it true of us, the, the, the challenge... Of this, this elusive contentment of, of having enough when we have God and when we have food and clothing. The answer to the question of how much is enough, as one philosophers for years have said, is always a little bit more, right? How much land? A little bit more. How much money? A little bit more. How much time and investment in beauty? A little bit more. How many follows and clicks and likes on social media? A few more. How many vacations and and what degree of luxury in the vacations? Just in the next one, a little bit more. Solomon, or not Solomon, uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes uh, said, the eye has never enough of seeing, nor the ear of hearing. That's true of the human condition. And yet our apostle, our apostle in prison, says that's not true of me. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, whatever. That's the claim of contentment. And it's not a, it's not a cynical whatever, whatever. You know, whatever you're going to do, just do it. I'll, I don't even care anymore. That's more of the stoic contentment. No, Paul is saying this wonderful whatever. Whatever may come, my sense of having enough in this life to bear fruit for Christ is invincible and indestructible to changing circumstances. It's a whatever that's in our hymns. And this was really cool. Laurie and I did not uh, communicate at all about hymn choices. And so I had these two in my sermon manuscript this morning and then show up and we sing of these two great whatevers and hymns that we love. Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth whatever my God ordains. brought Low or abounding is right. When peace like a river attendeth my way and sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's the nature of this contentment that Paul is speaking of. This whatever my lot. I want you to know, Philippians, even in prison, it is well with my soul. So thank you for your gift. I didn't need it. I want you to know I have and you too can learn to be content. Where nothing good could make you more content and nothing bad could take an ounce of it away. Which then brings us to the question what's the source of this contentment? And it's in verse 13. We've seen the nature of this contentment the source of this contentment. One of the most famous verses in all the Bible I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In high school, uh, my sport uh, was golf. I played on our varsity golf team. And I, I really, I usually don't tell people this because I'm afraid if I tell them this, they're going to ask me to play golf with them. And, and just to put it all on the table, I got all my golf out of my system in high school. Uh, in my junior year, that, that calendar year, including my junior year of, of, of high school, I played 325 rounds of golf in one calendar year. Um, and now, honestly, I'd rather clean my garage. <laughs> Unless it's playing with my brothers, it's just, just a different thing, it's, it's more of a brotherly thing. But my, my junior year in high school, I was, I was doing pretty well, and I was definitely considered one of the challengers to, to win our district tournament, and I was just at that place where I was thinking, what can I do to get some extra edge on the golf course, you know, especially after you've had a bad shot and things kind of unravel internally. And so one night in my room, I got a Sharpie and I wrote really big on my golf bag, which I kept in my room, Philippians 4.13. Because I had seen certain athletes who'd done similar things. And the next day I show up for a, a, our next match, I'm on the driving range, and, and my friend, the number two on our team, Max, says, What's that? And uh I said, Philippians 4.13, it says, I can do all things through Christ who things and strengthens me. And he said, Do you think that's gonna make you shoot better? And I, I don't know what I said, but I know what I thought. Um, I hope so. <laughs> Maybe I can win district through Christ who strengthens me. I didn't, by the way. And, and I remembered that, and I chuckled a couple months ago when I saw a mug, a, a, like a Christian satire mug, pop up on one of my little ad clicks when I was on the, online. And I clicked it, and I almost bought it. It was a Christian mug that said, I can do all things through a Bible verse taken out of context. (laughs) So don't ask me to play golf with you, but if you want to give me that mug, I'll take it. What does Paul mean by all things? Is he talking about whatever you dream, you can achieve it through Christ who strengthens you? Whatever you're trying to attain... You just need to get that missing ingredient of him who strengthens you, that Christ is that that lever that will take you to a new plateau of, of performance? No. What he means by all things is all these things that he's just been talking about in verses 11 and 12. How to abound, how to be brought low, how to face plenty, how to face hunger. In these circumstances that range in life as you're following Christ, whatever you might meet, those are the things. You can meet them through Christ who strengthens you. But the source of this contentment is his union with Christ. It's interesting, in, in the, the Greek, it actually says, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. And, and we could quibble about which preposition is better, but, but whether it's in him or through him, either way, Paul's saying, my union with Christ is the source of my contentment. What he's saying is that, that Christ is not an instrument for me, and, an instrument to help me achieve greater things. No, he's saying, you need to understand, my life has been incorporated into the life of Christ. My life has been incorporated into the life of Christ. My son Owen is in kindergarten this year, just a couple weeks in, and and early this week he was learning to understand where he lives in terms of neighborhood, city, state, and nation, and which one is set within the greater. And so he had this little... Four pieces of paper cut in a circle with a pen through them at the bottom, and, and the small one is neighborhood, and you pull it back, and then you see city, and then you pull it back, and then you see state, and you pull it back, and there's a bigger one, and then you see country. And he would label all of those. Watson, Orchard, Greenville, South Carolina, United States. And if you are a Christian, what, what Paul is saying is there's another one that's deeper and behind country, and it's bigger yet. Wherever your neighborhood, city, state, or country is, your your largest kind of identifier of place is that you are in Christ. That's the most determinative thing about where you are, no matter where you are. So whether Paul's in prison or at sea, he's in Christ. Whether he is embracing the warm fellowship of the Philippians or being hunted down by the Pharisees, he's in Christ. That's what he's trying to say. And when you are in Christ, there is a a perpetual supply of everything that Christ has being given to you. Paul, uh, uh, Jesus himself talks about this a lot, and one of the most beautiful places is, is in the Upper Rim Discourse in John 15. A lot of y'all know this passage well, where it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, he it is who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He's saying, uh, you're like a branch grafted into a vine. I'm the vine. You're incorporated into me. And so all that is mine now is perpetually, constantly, reliably flowing into and supplying your life as a branch to the point that you can bear fruit. I want to say, I think there are a a few key kind of milestones or or watershed moments in, in the Christian life where a Christian sees something they hadn't seen before or begins to practice something they never practiced before and it it kind of divides their life into before that and after that. Two of them would be, one would be um, going from being a Christian who is not familiar with the Psalms and doesn't spend time praying the Psalms to becoming a Christian who does. Just every Christian who's ever finally discovered the Psalms and learned how to pray from the Psalms, resource their prayer life from the Psalms, it's a before and after moment. It's totally different. But an even more important and critical one is going from understanding as a Christian that Christ died for me to understanding because it's all over the New Testament, that if Christ died for me, Christ also is living in me. Watershed moment. It was a watershed moment for C.S. Lewis when he came to realize, as a Christian, I have another person living inside of me when I am praying when I'm working, when I'm going through my day. It was a watershed moment for Paul. He says, I am crucified in Christ in Galatians 2. I am crucified in Christ. I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And what he's wanting the Philippians to know is that's the source of his contentment, is that no matter what his location, his ultimate location, is that he is in Christ. And that with Christ comes everything that's Christ's for us His forgiveness, His righteousness, His wisdom, His joy. Jesus says, My joy I give to you later in the Upper Room Discourse. His family. We receive brothers and sisters. This isn't a solitary thing. And also, Paul talks about this a lot if you go looking for it His strength. A perpetual supply of the strength needed to meet the needs of that situation. So the source is his union with Christ. but There's a second component to this source. Paul says he's had to learn this. Twice in this passage he says, I have learned. And, and, and the verb means it's something I began learning on the road to Damascus when I was converted. And I've been continuing to learn it up to this very point. And it's the same for you and me. Uh, we, we have to learn over time and through experiences that Christ is enough. And that Christ sustains us and supports us and never leaves us hanging, never leaves us without what we need in the situations, highs and lows, he calls us to face. And and that can sometimes begin with simple things that are near you. I was reflecting on this, uh, the church I pastored years ago had been there for two or three years and I had three men in the course of a year come to me independently and say something that was really encouraging. Um, The church I pastored was a rabid Clemson fan base. And I don't, you can relate, I'm sure. And, and I had a man come up to me and say, um, you know, I just want you to know, like the ministry of this church and, and the word going out, it's, it's landing. And, and one of the ways I've seen it is this. I, I used to go to a Clemson game. And if we won, I was stratospherically elated. Not just that night, but Sunday as well. And would prance through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday until the next game. But if we lost my poor wife, you know, I was, I was kind of miserable and console. I faked the joy in church on Sunday. Monday, my feet were just heavy in church, and I just needed another win to wash this loss away. And what they said was, the change I've noticed is I still enjoy the games. I still want to go to the games. I love the whole environment. I love the tailgating. I love, I love being in there. I want our team to win. But I've begun to find there's a stability to my contentment. I'm okay whatever the outcome. When they win, I'm not stratospherically high. When they lose, I'm not in the dumps for a week. And that's that starting point. I had two more guys say the same thing over the next year. It was really cool. That starting point of learning Christ's provision and what's nearest to you. And then it moves out from there a woman named Billy Brady in her 70s, walking with Christ for 50 years, prayer-saturated, Bible-saturated, Jesus-loving woman. She's going into a surgery. The doctors have told her, there's a decent chance you don't come out of the surgery. And I'm at her bed with her husband there, and she tells me, before we pray, I want you to know something, young man. There's a chance I might not come out of this. And I'm so excited. Because if I do come out of it, That means I'm going to be better. I'm going to feel better than I felt in a couple of years. But if I don't come out of it, she turned to her husband and said, no offense, honey. It'll be even better. I'm going to be with Jesus at last. She had this wonderful whatever as she was facing an uncertain outcome in a surgery. It starts with simple things that are near. Can I be content this semester without a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Can I be content not getting the best grade on the test? Can I be content with the season with my child struggling? Can I be content going through this grief? Can I be content in the midst of just insecurity and uncertainty about our culture? And it goes out from there to the point that you say, and all the whatever's the best one is going to be immediately with the Lord. The nature of this contentment, the source of this contentment, so much more we could say on it. But finally, what's the purpose of this contentment? If you could arrive and grow into, learn over time, situation by situation, season by season, year by year, high and low, mountaintop and valley, and arrive at this point where you can say, I now, when I face a new thing that's unfamiliar and scary, I expect to find the sufficiency of Christ in it. If you reach that point, what's the point? One of the best writers I have read in the last several years, who describes kind of the default purpose in life that Americans for the last two, going on three generations now, have been operating with, our default sense of the purpose of our lives, is a writer named Philip Reef, R-I-E-F-F, and he wrote a book in the 1960s, was one of his first books, called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And his observation, really keen, and he's starting to really get revived these days, was that Prior to the mid-20th century, and, and he was an expert in Freudian psychology, though he was not himself a, a Freudian, if you had a person who was struggling and you're trying to make them well, the answer was you need to get that person in a good community. Get them in a community where they can begin conforming themselves and their lives and their ways to that community and embracing its traditions, and a, a relatively health commu- healthy community, get them in that and they'll get better. He says, but, but post kind of Freud... And by the mid-20th century up to our day, we've, we've changed all of that. No, you need to cut cords with community. Community is binding, community is restricting. You need to focus on these internals of yourself and make yourself the object of your own kind of scientific study. And this new goal in life for what he calls, the mindset he calls it, psychological man. We've all become psychological man. And the goal, he says, is this, the goal of life for us is to achieve a delicate balance of well-being. And it's delicate, because achieving it involves constantly fine-tuning relationships, and sleep patterns, and nutrition, and exercise, and job descriptions. And on and on it goes to achieve this elusive, delicate balance of well-being. And it's fragile. It can be thrown off course with one conversation, one grade, one event. And so it takes, it's a massive, mind-consuming enterprise in our day to be the psychological man who is focused on achieving and then maintaining this delicate balance of well-being I share that with you because I relate to it so deeply. And his point is it's, it's just deep in our culture. And so with it being so deep in our culture, we could hear a sermon on contentment, and this is how we process it. I would love that. I would love to be the kind of man or woman who is content no matter the circumstance. And we begin to have visions of being content for contentment's sake. I would love to just be floating in contentment for the rest of my life. That's not Paul's purpose with contentment. He's not dreaming of just being content. His contentment in this sense is instrumental. It's toward a greater cause. And that greater cause in four words is to bear fruit for God. That's what Paul's life is going to be about. He says this. You can can put your finger in Philippians 1. Just hold it there. But in, in, in Romans 7, 4, Paul says in kind of a programmatic statement, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. In Philippians 1, 11, he's praying for the Philippians that they may be uh, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And later in chapter 1 he's saying there's three options for me. I'm either going to be staying in prison for a long time or they're going to kill me or they're going to release me. I know you're praying for my my release. And he basically says this, I think I'm probably going to be released that God's going to deliver me because as I think about it, if I'm released, that would mean more fruitful, verse 22, labor for me. And that's all he's considering. Not if I can do this, It'll make me less content, but it will have more fruit. If I do this, I'll be the same contentment, but slightly less fruit. What's the contentedness to fruitfulness calculus I'm going to choose here? No, the contentment is stable the same. So now my only consideration of what's in front of me is what bears more fruit? That's what I'm going after. What will bear more fruit to God? One of my favorite little books great way. If you've never read anything on the Reformed faith and you wanted to read something straight from their own pen, start with Martin Bucer. Instruction in Christian Love. He wrote it in 1523, a couple years after the Protestant Reformation began. At this point, Calvin's only 14. Bucer will become Calvin's spiritual father, have a massive influence on him. But is summarizing what it is about the Protestant Reformation that means so much. And he basically says this, When you have assurance that Christ has fully paid for all of your sins and you don't work for it, add to it, it's secure, that means that you know today that God is your Father. And when that sinks in, Booster says, you begin to be released from the preoccupation to which we are all enslaved, which is what's going to happen to me in the days ahead all of us are consumed with that concern for am i going to be okay he says but when the gospel sinks in you progressively know my heavenly father cares my heavenly father has a mind for me and he will provide for me and this is where booster says it ends when you are freed from that preoccupation and concern for self you now have the bandwidth opened to study the needs of your neighbor you're now free to notice your neighbor to see what they need and to go and serve them and to do so for the glory of God. That's the glorious thing of this this sense of knowing God's your Father and having contentment is that you'll be free to serve Him. Bear fruit for God. In closing, uh, someone who, who did that with her life just went to be with the Lord last week. Any of you all know the name Marilyn Laszlo? She was a missionary for Wycliffe Bible Translators. And a young Indiana farm girl sent off to Papua New Guinea in 1966 or 67. She and I think it was her sister, but she had a missionary partner with her. They went into the village of Hana in Papua New Guinea, two 20 something white girls, to a population that had never seen Western people. And they spent a quarter of a century there learning their language, developing an alphabet, writing the Bible in their language. And then she became a a global speaker on this. Amazing person to hear speak. But she said she one time had someone ask her, you know, those first nights there on the other side of the world, in Papua New Guinea, there's dangerous animals around. There's insects that can kill you. There's diseases that you don't have immunity to. And there's a people that are trying to figure out, first off, are these two women boys or girls? We can't tell because they're wearing clothes. And you don't know if they're going to decide to kill you or, or let you live with them. Weren't you scared? And the line Marilyn Lazlo loved to tell was the line she answered with. She said, no, I wasn't scared. Because I knew in that moment, sleeping in a tent on the other side of the world, that there's no safer place to be than right in the center of God's will. There's no safer place to be than right in the center of God's will. And my friends, that is what Paul also experienced 1900 some years before. That's what he's trying to convey to these Philippians. Thank you for the gift. Can I tell you the glorious reason I didn't even need it? This nature of contentment. No good thing will make it more. No bad thing will make it less. The source of this contentment. Union with Christ. And experience of leaning on him. And the purpose of this contentment. To bear fruit for God. And it's certainly a contentment worth singing about. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, You know where each man, woman, young and older person is today. If they don't know Christ... Would you make clear to them through your spirit and through the word preached that to be a Christian is not just to be someone for whom Jesus has died, but to be someone in whom the most wonderful person who's ever lived, the God-man, would be pleased to live and help them to open the door of their hearts to his knocking. And for those who did that maybe some weeks, months, or years, or decades ago, would you by your spirit continue to minister this word that there is a contentment found in Christ, as he will strengthen them at all times in all their needs. Lord, would you do that in the life of this congregation, in the life of each person here, in your particular, careful, fatherly way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.